here we are going to find ourselves uh, to chapter 11 of the Gospel of, of John. Last week we saw Jesus escape uh, because of the attempts uh, to kill him um, in Jerusalem. Uh, this morning we come to a very well, the beginnings at least, of a very well-known story. Uh, that story of Lazarus. We're just going to look at the very first uh, part of that story uh, this morning. So let me go ahead and read it now. Um, we'll move on down through verse 16. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who had anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill, so the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And the disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he um, meant taking rest and sleep. And then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin and said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Let's pray. Father, would you be with us now? Would you bless our time in your word? Might you make it, make it come alive before us? And might we see and know our Savior better through your word this day, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. As I was thinking about this uh, passage, I was reminded of some unlikely friendships. I don't know if you know who Christopher Hitchens was. He was an outspoken atheist. And he actually struck up a very close relationship with a guy named Larry Taunton, who was a strong believer. And um, Christopher Hitchens went around uh, debating all of these people um, from a very strong atheistic bent, but, but Larry's the one who helped set those things up, and they actually became very dear friends. And Christopher would actually come and stay at Larry's house, and if you think about that, it seems almost kind of like, how in the world do these two unlikely people, this strong, kind of almost rabid atheist, and this strong believer, how do they become such close friends? It seems so unlikely, Right? As we look at our passage this morning and we see Jesus' relationship uh, with this particular family, let, let us be reminded of how unlikely that is in a way. Think of that great distance between God and men and women, sinful men and women, and here we have the God-man, and what does he do? He, he has such incredibly close relationships with so many people, including the gospel writer before us this morning who often refers to himself as what? The disciple whom Jesus, Jesus loved. So 
We have some people here in our, our story, the kind of main characters, if you will. We see them in verses 1 and 2. Uh, we hear about Lazarus, and, and he's from Bethany, Bethany, this town that's it's only two miles from Jerusalem, so it's kind of like a suburb of Jerusalem, you know, if we think in our, our mindset today. Um, so not very far at all, and, and we introduced also to his sisters, uh, Mary and, and Martha, and John tells us that, that Mary is the sister who had anointed uh, Jesus' feet and wiped it with her hair, and he just assumes that we know that story. We're not going to go into that story this morning. You can go and read Luke 10 later today, but it's kind of interesting. John just assumes that everybody knows, knows uh, that story. He know, they know about this family, even though this is the first time we're coming into contact with them in the gospel. And we learn that this family, in this family, there's one who is ill. In fact, verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, three times we hear what? That Lazarus is ill. No, I don't know if that may be telling of how ill he is that it's repeated three times. And we learn quickly about Jesus' relationship to this family, to these three siblings, right? The, the, the women, they, they send to Jesus, and what do they say in verse 3? But, Lord, he whom you love is ill. We learn how close that relationship is. And then in verse 5, what do we read? Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Wouldn't you just love, I mean, I would just love to know the details of that. Yet, so, as so often, Scripture just doesn't tell us the things we want to know. Like, like did they grow up next to each other? Were they like next-door neighbors growing up? Or, were, were they like somehow related? What, you know, what was the, the connections there that they became so close? Well, Scripture doesn't tell us that, but it does tell us something about the intimacy of their relationship that they were, were incredibly close, so close that we're, we'll even see next week that all the people even comment and say, oh, look at how he loved him. And we learn something here, I think, just in this verse, of, uh, in, back in verse 3, of, of Mary and Martha's approach to Jesus. Okay? Their, their brother is ill, so what do they do? First thing, they go to the right person, right? They, they take it straight to Jesus. They, they, they know who to take their concern to. They know the only one who can help them in this situation. They go straight to Jesus, and we can learn a whole lot there. I think about who we should be running to in our times of great difficulty, right? But we don't just learn that. Do you, do, do you notice the basis of their request? What, what, what do they say in, in verse 3? Lord, he whom you love is ill. That's the basis of their request. They, they don't go and they say, oh, the, our brother who loves you so much is ill. Do you understand the difference there? Unfortunately, I think sometimes that may be more of our tendency in the way that we approach God in some way. We, we go to God and say, God, I, I really, 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 really love you. So will you? Now, that's a good thing, understand. It's a good thing for us to go to God, and it's a very good thing for us to tell him how much we love him. But we have access to him, not because of our love for him, but because of his love for us. And they recognize that as they go, don't they? They recognize the one who loves their brother and their family. Matthew Henry put it well. They do not say, he whom we love but he whom thou lovest 
Our greatest encouragements in prayer are fetched from God himself, from his grace. They do not say, Lord, behold, he who loveth thee, but he whom thou lovest. For herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. Our love to him is not worth speaking of. But his to us can never be enough spoken of. Understand the basis as we go to God in prayer. It's, it's, it's on his promises. It's on his love. It's not based on us. How amazing it is. How amazed we are as we look at this passage of, of Jesus' love for this dear family. And, and in the context of that, let's not miss Jesus' humanity here. Jesus, you, you would think, you know, here he is, God-man. You know, we, we, we put him in like this whole other category, rightfully so. But at the same time, he was fully man, right? He doesn't go around as some loner. He had genuine, true, real human friendships. Next week, we'll see that he even has true human emotions, right? He's fully God, our fully man. And that's really important for us, that he be fully man. That the importance of him being truly man cannot be missed. How to go, how to burg catechism puts it this way. He must be a true man, a real man, fully man, because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which has sinned should pay for sin. And so we are so thankful that he is fully human, but he is also, as we read here, righteous, a righteous man, because one who himself is a sinner cannot pay for the sin of others. Oh, how thankful you and I must be that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. What good news that is that we have one who is fully man. And what does he do in the context of this? He steps into the suffering of his dear friends. And he loves them, and he loves them so much that what does he do? This is skipping down a little bit in our passage. We're not taking everything in perfect order this morning. But he loves him so much, what is he willing to do? In verse 7, we, we, we read that he says, let's go to Judea again. But then what do his disciples do? In verse 8, they say, Rabbi, the Jews were just seeking to stone you. Are you going to go there again? Remember, this is just two miles away from Jerusalem. This would be a dangerous place for Jesus to go back to, and yet he won't be deterred. His love for his friends are, are so great. He's going to go, even though he knows, no doubt, that this is the beginning of his real journey to the cross. Okay, we'll, we'll be talking about that in, in future weeks as, as we continue to see this is Jesus' approach. His love is so great that he's willing to suffer for his sheep. As Galatians 1 says, he gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. He loves us so much. He, he loves his Father so much that he is willing to go even though he knows that it's a dangerous road ahead. He goes. Even so. Now, as we look at this passage, we, we can't help but be reminded of the suffering here. Here's these dear sisters who are suffering first the sickness and then the death of, of their brother. Now, maybe 
I think we've probably all been there to some degree or another, right? How many funerals have you been to? How many visitations have you been to? How many times have you tried to console others or how many times have you maybe been consoled in those circumstances? And maybe in those circumstances you've also heard Christians come alongside, meaning I think well, but just offering you a platitude. And they come through the line or whatever and they say, oh, God, God works all things together for the good. Which is true. In that sense, it's good theology, but misplaced in that moment, right? Yes, Paul said what, and we know that, <laughs> and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good. For those who are called according to his purpose, of course, Paul isn't just talking about a temporary and momentary good right then in the midst of, of suffering, in the midst of mourning. He's talking about something much bigger. He's talking about something which brings glory to God and that he's talking about an ultimate good, isn't he? Not an immediate good. He's not just coming along and saying, oh, don't worry, be happy now, right? This good here is, is much deeper. It's, it's much greater. And when we just come along somebody and we just say, oh, God's working all this together for the good, we're, I think that's actually the wrong time for that. In fact, I, I think we need to learn that maybe right now. And that's what Jesus is going to help teach us. We need to learn it right now so that when those times come, when those times come, then, then we know that truth. I've been reminded of this many times as I, as I attempt to, to minister to folks who are, are grieving. And, and so often with mature Christians, when I go to, to minister to them, I actually find them ministering to me because what do they do? In the midst of their grief, what do they say? They say things like, God is good. They can't help but, those things can't help but come from their mouth. I'm re reminded of my grandma at the grave of my grandfather. They just covered, covered it over with dirt. And we're standing there, and she's standing there, and I remember her just saying softly, God has been so good to us. And that's because it had already worked its way into her into the depths of, uh, of her soul so that she's able to say it in that moment of suffering. It's not just some platitude to bring. And so what we hear from Jesus and what we're going to hear this morning from Jesus, it's not just mere words of platitude. It's something very deep that needs to work its way into our heart. So Jesus, he hears that Lazarus is sick, right? And as we read in verse 5, we already read it, we'll read it again. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So what's our expectation? He finds out that he's sick. We expect him to go running, right? We expect him to go there and we expect him to heal him. Why? Because that's what Jesus has been doing. He's been healing so many others. And now his dear friend is sick. And we expect him to go running. That's what we would do, right? You, you hear that somebody's in the hospital, something bad has happened. What do you do? A dear friend, you go running. What does Jesus do? Verse 6. Remember the context. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, or therefore, <laughs> so, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. <laughs> he, he loved them so? He stayed longer? What? That, that doesn't compute for us. Jesus, what are you thinking? We'd want to ask, right? And in fact, everybody kind of asks, well, we'll see it next week, right? But both of the sisters asked Jesus if you'd only been here. The crowd says, Jesus, if you've been here, you've been able to heal him. I mean, put yourself in these sisters' shoes. 
Don't just leap. You know, we know what's going to happen to Lazarus, right? Don't just, just leap to the end. Oh, it's going to all come out good and everything's going to be fine. No. Their brother has died. Jesus' dear friend has died. And the one that they knew had the power, he didn't come running. He was late. Well, at least from their perspective. Jesus was right on time. We, we, we can argue that. But, but from a humanly perspective, he, he was late. How do you handle those moments where God shows up late, or you think he's late? I mean, he's never late, but whenever his will doesn't match up with yours, you know what I mean. How does that affect you? Do you become angry, sad, depressed, despondent? Do you doubt? You see, we we, we know the the difficulties of those moments whenever he doesn't show up on time. And and it's in those moments that we got to understand that just mere like words are not enough. Just mere like theology in our head, that moment doesn't doesn't help what we need is a person. We need Jesus. And we need him to teach us. And and in fact, Jesus enters into the lives of, 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 of these women the lives of his disciples and all, and he uses this as an opportunity to teach him. The text tells us that it was his love for Mary and Martha and Lazarus that led him to delay. As difficult as Lazarus' death would have been for them, as tragic and as sad it would have been for them and was for them, likely losing, you know, they're likely losing the one who provided for them for Jesus to have rushed to Bethany. To have healed Lazarus would not have been best for them. <laughs> they needed, if you will, a degree from the school of grief and death. Could it be? Could it be that God loves you and I so much that he allows us to go through difficult times? Even the death of a loved one. So that we'll grow in our relationship with him, growing and understanding our ultimate need for him. We need to learn that in this passage, Jesus intended this suffering to take place. We, we don't say those things very often. We kind of, you know, like that makes us uncomfortable. Jesus intended for this to take place. And it was out of his love. In fact, and sometimes we, we, we have this problem though. Where we look at suffering and what do we begin to do? We begin to say, well, maybe God doesn't love me. Or maybe he doesn't love me as much because I am suffering. No, that's not the picture we see in Scripture. And In fact, if anything, the suffering shows his love, not the lack of it. Please never say, I'm suffering, therefore God doesn't love me. Our suffering must never be used as a measure of God's love in that way. And be reminded of what the author of Hebrews says. For the Lord, what does he do? He, he, he disciplines the one he loves. He chastises every son whom he receives. Jesus loves them. And so he allows this to take place. It's for their good. That doesn't mean they're able in the moment to be able to figure it out and understand it. I'm not saying that for a moment. But God is using it. He's using it for their good. Now, let's be clear that what's going on here, this is, his, Jesus' sole motivation here is not just the love of his friends. The motivations are much bigger 
as we're going to see. It's not just about Mary and Martha. It goes well beyond them. I'm reminded, of course, of Lord of the Rings. Um, there's a moment where, where Frodo is just kind of overwhelmed. He's, he's overwhelmed with, with this task that is before him, and he says, I wish the ring had never come to me. I wish none of this had ever happened. You can see the kind of sense of how that fits with our passage. And, and what does Gandalf tell him? Gandalf says, so do all who live to see such times. But this is not written for them, this is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. There are other forces at, at work in this world, Frodo, besides the will of evil. Bilbo was meant to find the ring, in which case you were also meant to have it. And that is an encouraging so we can't always understand all the, the, the wherefores and how all those things w- work t- together. But Gandalf says something powerful, something that actually sounds a whole lot like Jesus in the passage. He says something about that time that is given to us. Now, we, we already mentioned Jesus' desire to go, right? And his disciples say, don't go! What does Jesus say to that? Verse 9, he says this. Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day... He does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Now, that's a confusing sounding statement probably to us. And that's because we live in a world that is only kind of like partially governed by the sun. They they lived in a world that was almost like totally governed by the sun. You know, you you and I, we we may put off things, oh, I'll do that tonight. Or I'll put in a little bit more work after the kids go to bed or whatever it is. No, in, in their world, like, the sun went down and, like, the day is, for the most part, it's, it's over. So what does Jesus mean as he uses this metaphor? He says, now is the time. Now is the time to do the will of him who sent me. Disciples are trying to, they're trying to dissuade him. No, let's, let's not go. That's dangerous. But Jesus is what? He's intent on following the, the path that is laid out before him. This is his time, and ultimately, he knows that as he goes down this path, he has nothing to fear. He is absolutely secure in the Father's arms, regardless of the suffering that he knew was ahead. Far greater suffering, and this is where we need to understand, like as we go through these difficult times, and we wonder all these whys, oh, has Jesus walked those roads? And we... Our suffering is bad, yes, at times. But, oh, Jesus is is like a whole magnitude greater. And yet he goes because it's his time to go. Now, we learn something here because Jesus doesn't just here speak of himself, right? What does he say? Verse 9, if anyone, if anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble. We, too, find ourselves in the day. We, 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 too, find ourselves in the days of, of Christ's kingdom, and we are called to be his ambassadors, and we, we are called to go out to the very ends of the earth telling others about the good news of Jesus Christ. We are called to walk in accord with, with his will because we live right now in the light, and, and the days are numbered when we're able to do so, but we're called to go. And, and as we go, we need to understand that we, if we are in Christ, if we know Jesus Christ, if we know his sacrifice on our behalf, We're absolutely secure. 
and we have nothing to fear. Yes, as we go out, we, we, there may be suffering that comes our way. In fact, in some ways, it's almost guaranteed for us. But we'll be absolutely secure. But we must fear. And we must be careful that we're not walking, as Jesus says in verse 10, walking in the night. Because what are we going to be doing? We're going to be stumbling all over the place. Jesus, though, Jesus moves boldly forward, boldly willing to, to, to go back, to go to Bethany, knowing how close it is to Jerusalem, knowing what that path is going to take, that it's going to ultimately take him to the cross. And he willingly, he goes. Why does he go? He goes because he trusts his father. And this gets us to the, the ultimate reason, the, the, the big reason that we see here in our, our, our passage of, of why does this suffering come? Why does Lazarus die? Why would Jesus delay? Verse 4. What does he say? This is Jesus' first reaction when he hears the news about his dear friend. What is his first reaction? This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. How does this bring glory to God? Well, we'll see it next week, right, as, as Jesus comes in. And what does he do through the power and the work of the Spirit? What does he do? He, he raises Lazarus from the dead. And who gets the glory for that? It's not Lazarus, right? Jesus is going to get the glory. The glory should rightfully go to God, the Father, and to his Son. And you know what? And this is where we, we, we sometimes, if that was all, that would be enough. Now, of course, we're going to talk in a moment, there's more. But if that were all, if it was only to bring glory to God, and if it wasn't what we're about to hear, and if it wasn't the things that we've already heard about how it's for our good and how it's good for us to go through those, those times of suffering and grief and God grows us through those things, even if, cancel all that out, if it's just for his glory, that is enough. But there's more. Towards the end of the passage, the disciples are confused by what Jesus has been saying because he's been talking about Lazarus being asleep. And they think, oh, well, he's, if he's asleep, then he'll wake up. There's no reason for us to go. All's going to be okay. And what does Jesus tell them? Verse 14. He has to tell them plainly, no, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you might believe. Let us go to him. And what do we learn here? Yes, it's for God's glory ultimately, but what do, we, what do we learn here? It's for the disciples' good. It's, this is going to be good, not just for the glory of God, not just as we've already spoken, for the, for the good of, of Mary and Martha and ultimately Lazarus as they go through that, that grave suffering, but it's for the disciples' good so that they, their, their faith might increase. So they might learn to trust Jesus and understand more of who he is. It's for their good. And so often this is the case. In fact, it's typical in Scripture. That which is for the glory of God, what is it also? It's for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purposes. That which is good for the glory of God is also for our good, ultimately. We may not always understand it in the moment, but it's good for so many. We'll, we'll find out next week. It's also good for the 
Many other Jews who saw this and who heard and believed in him as a result. And it's also good, because as we'll see, it's him going to Jerusalem. It's him with this miracle that, what does it do? It puts the, verse 53, it puts the plans into place for his death. (laughs) Oh, and how it brings ultimately the glory to our great God. Now, we can't understand it all. We'd like to. We can't always understand why suffering comes our way. Sometimes maybe in retrospect we're able to see some of the reasons, but God often, you know, what is the saying, like God's doing, (laughs) God's at work in a thousand different ways all at the same time, you know, and so we may kind of get one of the reasons why he's at work in the way that he is, but but you know what we can be confident of? And what I, I think we see confidence here in our passage is we can be confident that it's never without a purpose. That whatever comes our way, whatever kind of suffering comes the way for a believer, it is never without a purpose. Jesus goes to, to, to Bethany, and he, he goes willingly, even though he knows that the path will, will lead to suffering. Why? Because he knows the purpose. He knows the ultimate purpose. He knows the great purpose that the Father has, has for this. Now, our passage ends with a surprising response. So often in the Gospels, we, we keep hearing these responses to what Jesus does, right? And we hear an unlikely disciple, the first time we hear from him, verse 16. Thomas, what does he say? Let us also go that we may die with him. Seems like it comes out of nowhere for us. But what's going on here? And there is some like, okay, what is it? Is, is this resignation on the part of Thomas, resigning himself like, I don't know if this is a good idea, but I'm going to go with you, Jesus. Or is it great courage, willingness to go? Probably in the middle there of those two things. It's some of both. He probably thinks, this isn't a great idea, but what do we also see? We see great bravery, a willingness. He, he's going and knowing, assuming that it's going to lead not to just Jesus' death, but the death of all the disciples. And Thomas is willing to go. How contrary that is to our typical perceptions of Thomas, right? We just know him as doubting Thomas. And here we see the great courage that he has, the great devotion that he has to Jesus, even if he's a bit hard-headed in the midst of it and doesn't quite understand everything that Jesus is, is, is saying here. At this moment, he's going, willing to go to his death. But he doesn't quite understand that he can't really go with Jesus where he's going, right? He's not going to be able to go to the cross with Jesus. I love the way John Calvin puts it this way. He says, but but this, as I've said, proceeds from an inconsiderate zeal. So so he has this zeal, but it's like, uh, you haven't really factored everything in here, Thomas. For he, what? He ought rather to have taken courage from faith in the promise. Okay, he has this great zeal, but it's somewhat misplaced because he hasn't taken into context all of what Jesus has been saying and what he's been telling them. He seems to lack understanding in particular of what Jesus said from the very beginning. What did he say when he heard the news? He said, this illness, back in verse 4, this illness does not lead to death. 
He doesn't quite grasp it. He doesn't quite grasp those words that walking in the day, they will not stumble. He can't quite, Thomas doesn't quite get it all. Now, this doesn't mean there's not going to be a hard road. There's going to be a hard road ahead for Thomas, right? Thomas is one of the disciples. He's going to have a hard road ahead of himself. And we can speak of all the disciples and how it seems that most, if not all of them, their lives ended in martyrdom giving their lives for Jesus. There's also going to be, we'll talk about this in future weeks, I guess, but there's going to be a hard road ahead for Lazarus. You'd think Lazarus, everything's going to be good. He's going to rise from the dead, right? And surely it's good for him. It increases his faith, no doubt, as well. (laughs) But we're going to see that the religious leaders, what are they going to do? They're going to try to put Lazarus to death. They're going to seek him out to try to put him to death. His, His life doesn't get easier because of this. His life is actually going to come more difficult, yet at the same time, more rewarding, more rewarding than he could ever imagine as he began, no doubt, to take up Jesus' cross and follow him. You know, we all wonder, I assume you're like me, we all wonder when are things going to get easier? When will all this sin and sadness, when is it all going to go away, right? And, and we know the answer, of course, whenever we go to be with Jesus or, or he returns, whichever comes first, right? But we need the ministry of Jesus' words this morning. As we go through this in-between time, as we uh, uh, go through this time where everything is not yet good, everything has not been made good in a sense, We need to be reminded of those initial words of Jesus. Verse 4, what does he say? This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Do you know today that God is at work? Do you know that today because of the work of of his Son, Jesus Christ, and and because of Jesus' work We can have complete confidence knowing that the illness of this world, right, doesn't lead to ultimate death. That if we trust in him, if we cling to Jesus, if we know that his death was our death, that his resurrection was our resurrection, that if we know that, though... (laughs) We may at some point, assuming Jesus doesn't come back, we, 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 we may physically die. If we trust in Jesus, this illness does not lead to death. That, fine, that, that death that we think of that, that awaits us all is not the final word. Do you believe it? Do you know who Jesus is? Do you know what he has accomplished on your behalf? So that you need not fear death. Do you know it? This illness, Jesus says, does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God. Can we this morning give him 
all the glory for what he has done on our behalf so that we might never need to fear and so that we might confidently walk even in the midst of suffering knowing that our great God has a plan even if, even if we can't understand the details but knowing and having confidence that it's all never without a purpose and ultimately for his glory. Can we give him all the glory for all that he has done this day? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son. Thank you for the way it leaves us. He leaves us sometimes flabbergasted at first, wondering why he says things the way he does, why he proceeds the way that he does. But oh, would you help us to have great confidence that you are at work. And that even whenever the days are, are dark, you're at work then too. Oh, we thank you for your love for your children. We thank you that in your arms we can rest secure, that we have no fear of death. Father, we thank you for your word this day. And we pray that it has not gone out empty. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.